The show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're watching the 1987 British black comedy With Nail and I. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the plot, what there is of it. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen With Nail and I, go away and watch it now. Then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. Movies have given us many memorable drunks over the years, from Dudley Moore in Arthur... Are you a hooker? Jesus, I forgot. I just thought I was doing great with you. ...to the much-missed Gene Wilder as the Waco kid in Blazing Saddles. A man drink like that and he don't eat, he is going to die. When? But one of the greatest and most convincing movie drunks has to be teetotaler Richard E. Grant's portrayal of Withnail in With Nail and I. A pair of quadruple whiskies and another pair of pints, please. Set in the squalid underbelly of England's come-down after the swinging 60s... They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. ..the film follows two out-of-work actors, Grant's With Nail... I demand to have some booze! ..and Paul McGann's unnamed character, I... How dare you tell him I'm a toilet trader! ..who decide they need a break from London, so persuade With Nail's rich Uncle Monty, played by the irreplaceable Richard Griffiths... As a youth, I used to weep in butcher shops to let them spend the weekend at his cottage in Cumbria. And that, essentially, is the entire plot. There's not much of a part, though, is it? Well, it's better than nothing. So With Nail and I clearly isn't about intricate plotting. What it is about is highly quotable dialogue. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here, and we want them now. I think the carrot infinitely more fascinating than the geranium. Free to those that can afford it. Very expensive to those that can't. Listen, we're going to find We're not from London. We've gone on holiday by mistake. Originally written as a semi-autobiographical novel by director Bruce Robinson, the manuscript first found its way into the hands of wealthy oil heir Moderick Schreiber, who put the money up to adapt it into a screenplay. This screenplay, in turn, ended up in the hands of ex-Beatle George Harrison, who agreed to produce it with his company, Handmade Films. The shooting of the movie was not without its problems, as, three days into filming, Handmade Films' representatives very nearly shut down production as they believed the script had no discernible jokes. How dare you! Having weathered that storm, Bruce Robinson then found himself having to invest £30,000 of his own money into the film to shoot vital additional scenes after Handmade refused to fund them. My father was loaded and asking for some money. Your father's my father, you wouldn't get it. Upon its release in 1987, the film did moderately well, but really came into its own on home video, where fans could watch again and again, learning ever more obscure chunks of dialogues to quote her baffled work colleagues. Get in the back of the van! This almost religious devotion has led some foolhardy fans to attempt to match the two lead characters drinking during the film, pint for pint, shot for shot. Fool, you should never mix your drinks! One fan even tried to buy the Cumbrian farmhouse featured in the film as Uncle Monty's cottage in order to turn it into a shrine to Withnail. In 2000, readers of Total Film voted Withnail and I the third greatest comedy film of all time, and critic Roger Ebert described Grant's performance as a tour de force, and Withnail as one of the iconic figures in modern films. 
so the film has clearly attained cult-like status. But is with Nail and I more than just a stream of quotable lines and the basis of the world's most liver-punishing drinking game? All right, this is the plan. We get in there and get wrecked. Then we'll eat a pork pie, and then we'll drop a couple of sevens or fifties each. It means we'll miss out Monday, but come up smiling Tuesday morning. Later in the show, inspired by Uncle Monty in With Nail and I, we'll be taking a look at the portrayal of gay characters in film and naming our top five movie drunks. But first, joining me to discuss a film with no plot are a couple of people who's obviously lost the plot. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that's right. A man who believes that Wham's Freedom is a better number one single than the Arctic Monkeys, I bet that you look good on the dance floor. <laughs> We'll come to that, Andy. I'm not letting you off this. It's Andy Goulding. Hello. And a woman that actually likes cats and is covered in most of their cat hair. <laughs> I don't know why I'm friends with these people. It's Rachel Burnett. Hello. What's she saying? Meow. Right. Um, well, we're going to skip the cat thing because it's never very popular to criticise cats. However, <laughs> Andy, explain yourself. I like. Don't get me wrong. I do like "Freedom by One." Great, yeah. great, really great track. Better in a disco, obviously, with you know, um, uh, with a floor with disco flashing lights. Perfect, absolutely perfect. But is it better than "I Bet That You Look Good on the Dance Floor" by Arctic Monkeys, or are you having a go at their tax avoidance? No, no, it just is, isn't it? It sounds, it sounds like a, a classic Motown single, whereas the Arctic Monkeys one, it, it, it's good, but it sounds like a sort of flash in the pan indie thing. <gasps> Okay, well, we better put a little bit of subtext behind this before we get, I mean, before we get, oh, you're with Nail and I we're talking about here, isn't it? But before we get to that, Andy, uh, the king of the list uh, is currently, you're currently going through the greatest, what is it, 100, 100 number, number, one, number singles. one singles of all time. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm assuming, unlike, sorry, I've got to get to this. Un- <laughs> unlike the every number one single of all time thing, it, it won't be, will it? At number one, it won't be that one, will it? No, it's Good. not. It's right. not. It's okay. not. Excellent. <laughs> Unless it. No, it's not. <laughs> right, enough of that tittle-tattle. On with, with Nail and I. Rachel, how many bottles of wine did you get through when you watched this? <laughs> I like to remain sober <laughs> whilst watching so I can fully appreciate the amazing performance. It, did, it made you want him, didn't it? Make you, it just, makes you feel drunk anyway. I don't it, think you it? need the extra help. <laughs> OK, so I mean, a lot of this is obviously going to come down to performance. Yeah. Let's not shy away from it. Go for it. Let's gush. I just think Richard E. Grant is absolutely marvellous. And he's just, and it's his film debut. And is he teetotaler as well, which is incredible. So I don't know. I don't know how the heck he does it. But all the way through, you feel sickly with him. You feel headachey. You feel <laughs> your mouth goes a bit like the bottom of a budgie's cage. It's just, you absolutely feel it. And his, his little red rimmed eyes. And you just think, oh my goodness. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Do you get a feeling though that because he was a teetotaler, I was thinking, I mean, I, I'm far from a teetotaler and now it's even further from a teetotaler in my youth. But uh, do you not feel that if maybe if you had been a teetotaler and you'd been able to observe mm. people getting drunk, you might be able to mm. act drunk a little better because That's true. when you're part of the crowd who's all drunk, you, you're not seeing all that kind of slurring and stuff, are you? you just, That's true. That's just the way you're functioning. So, yeah. I mean, I know Bruce Robinson, the director, insisted that Richard E. Grant got drunk at least once to do this role. So he had a chemical memory <laughs> of, uh, of what it was like. But I don't think that would have contributed to the performance no. because especially if you only do it once, you're just going to feel terrible and mm. and that's it, aren't you? Yeah. Whereas I think I think years of probably being the only sober person in the room probably <laughs> contributed to this brilliant performance. Let's pick apart the fact that it has no plot. How did <laughs> how did this get get made? I mean, I know we we talked about that in the introduction. Um, you know, George Harrison picked it up, and you know, I mean, he's been he's been responsible for picking up many things, hasn't he? Like. Uh, 
uh, Holy Grail, wasn't it? Yeah. Monty Python's Holy Grail as well. You know, that wouldn't have been made without him. Um, you know, so uh, what a hero. But it, it, I don't know, if someone dumped this on your desk, you'd say, that's not a film, mate. Mm. <laughs> I think it is a bit of a strange one because you need the performances behind the quotes. So if you get a screenplay like that and it says, here, here, here. If you haven't got Richard <laughs> Griffiths saying, here, here, here. It's just... <laughs> oh, well done. Thank you. Um, it's just, it's not, it's just a line. It's just a throwaway line like, okay, here, here, here. But it needs the performances. So it took a bit of inspiration and a bit of looking at that script and going, yeah, I can kind of hear this. And, and amazing that they actually went with it. I think you need to be able to look beyond those quotes, don't you? Because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, uh, normally when people say nothing happened in a film, I mean, there, there's a certain kind of mentality of person who, who says nothing happened in a film if there isn't like four car chases and three mm-hmm. explosions in there. And I often find myself arguing with people about this. Like someone once said to me that nothing happens in 12 angry men. Oh, there's just like 12 men sat in a room talking. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, but so much happens. They, they like come on so far in their opinions and the character development and everything. But with this, I have to concede nothing happens it's not just the, not just the plot the characters the way they are in the beginning is the way they are in the end one of them manages to physically extricate himself from the like horrific situation that they're in mm. and the others they just the way they were at the start they they end in the same way possibly slightly sadder yeah uh, so what is it and i think you need you need to be able to look at that script and and see that it it captures a moment in time and it captures. Uh, they're not. They aren't quite stereotypes, but they're. They're kind of. Ty- they are very well-rounded sort of depictions of people who would have been these kind of left in this hangover of the end of the decade when it got to the end of the sixties. It's like a this kind of uh, descent into a feel-bad world from mm. after like the summer of love and everything when people realise. Oh, hang on a minute. We've got Vietnam. We've got like the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby mm. Kennedy and everything. And there was this this big hangover as it, as it drifted mm. from decade into decade. And I think the characters in this just encapsulate that so perfectly. I think the first time I saw this, I was 13 years old. And so I didn't have kind of that context. I didn't have any idea of the political and social context of the end of the 60s. And I came away from it not really knowing what to make of it. Mm. And then, like, about three or four years later, for a, a period of time, this was my favourite film of all time. Mm-hmm. I loved it so much. And I think having that grasp of the kind of the social context about the end of the 60s is is so important. If you remember last year, as we talked about in Room, when we said, like, the room is almost a character in in the, the book and the film. Mm-hmm. And I, for me, the... The end of the 60s is as much a character as, uh, I mean, it's, it's quite a small cast in, in this, but this thing of the end of the 60s and the come down, the loss of the ideals and everything, it looms over everything in this mm. film and just casts this this shadow of, I mean, it's very funny, but it's very bleak and depressing mm. as well. Yeah, I think Danny says something quite, mm. quite poignant when he says about that they're selling hippie wigs in yeah. Woolworths. And um, and I think that's like you know then that it's over. Do you want to you know? do you want to say that again, but try and do the voice? <laughs> I wish I could. I really wish I could. Have I think, always I think wanted later, to be able later to on we need Danny to all, we need to have a Danny off and all have a go at that voice. <laughs> well, I've lost already. <laughs> you know he is he encapsulates for me the sixties and mm. and you know and he absolutely realizes that it's dying, but he's determined to go down with the ship. I think. But yeah, it's definitely it is a character in in the in the film, and I think maybe that's why George Harrison did see something in it. Yeah, because yeah. he lived through that. And he probably read through the script and thought, God, yeah, that's how I feel. You know, we all thought it was going to be this this great love, loving, 
free love thing and now it's just now they're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths. It could have been that one line and we go, oh, that's it, that's it, that's how it feels. It was multicoloured so. and they moved on to the brownness of the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. That's it, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And take the brown as a metaphor how you like. But <laughs> <laughs> it was certainly a musical holiday, wasn't it, really? Mm. Oh, no, Abba. <laughs> anyway, right, so, sorry, I drifted off. Bowie, Drif- Bowie. Oh, yeah. Bowie in yeah, the 70s, yeah, yeah. T-Rex. Re- All right, I'm going to retract my further statement. <laughs> Punk. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't really go for Paul. Oh, really? Oh. No. Um, but actually, let, let's link in. Let's link in some in some music here because these. And this, believe me, there are no questions attached to what I'm about to say. So, so dig me out of this particular radio cul-de-sac, kids. <laughs> but the, the references have seeped their way into people's lives, and it, it when they open the door. And I've, I, I saw this film probably in the '90s when I lived in a house that. I looked at that washing up in their house, for example, with nails, and I thought, call that washing up. That, that was We had a rule. We had a rule in that house where you weren't allowed to do the washing up at least 24 hours after the last person because, you know, let's face it, if you take your turn and you're only washing up like a glass and a cup or something like that and a spoon, then that's not fair. No. You have to... You, had to be able to tackle on loads. Of, I, I know it made sense at the time; it really did. But hey, that was the '90s kids, which was a bit more colourful than the '70s. Um, but it was just that uh, when they said, "Oh, that was presuming Ed," and I thought, "Oh, that, that's the name of an elbow song." So, oh, that seeped its way into there. And then um, the, the the quote where he goes, "Even a stopped clock gives the right time twice a day." From Paul McGann is the intro to "Call Your Boots" by Ride. You're on board. Yeah. You know when we ride. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, of course, Ride. Um, and "Call Your Boots" actually I, until. Oh, Bang! There's a trigger there because that was the, that was a quote in the, in there as well. Think, yeah. Oh, oh, it's it's everywhere. This thing. It's everywhere. You know, it's, it's obviously been a very influential film mm. uh, to people who lived. Perhaps their you know their student days picked it up. What was this? 1987. This film. Yes, so they yeah. picked it up um, as as um, brilliantly scripted. And I'm gonna I'm gonna, you know, the intros for our program are scripted between myself and, and our producer Johnny. Johnny wrote this one. And uh, what what was the phrase? Was it home video? Was that it? Was it home yeah. video? Because that's it. That that. Perfect phrasing there, um, because it was it was on the videotape that people yep. watched this again and again and rewound and watched them go backwards and then watched them go forwards again. <laughs> um, so there you go. I'd like I said, I just wanted to get those references in there. There's no question attached. <laughs> um, well, I, I I actually owned owned this on home video. It's where I fell in love with it, and it was the there is I, I own it on DVD now. But there there was something about about putting a video in. It's that felt right for this film. Yeah. That idea that it could just unwind at any time, this like, old sort of outdated format. <laughs> and that that's what got this film, doesn't it? It, it almost it almost stains you in watching yeah. it. You can always uh, you always feel like you come away needing a shower from it. <laughs> okay, right. Well I think now is gonna be the perfect time uh, to take a break because we're drifting down nostalgia lane here. <laughs> and later Andy is going to be taking a closer look at the portrayal of gay characters in movies and we'll be giving our final verdict on With Nail and I. That's all after this short break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning to buy anything from Amazon, if you do that via the links on our website, we'll get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including The Wawa Diaries, Richard E. Grant's personal account of the experience of writing and directing his autobiographical film of the same name. 
You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help keep our producer Johnny supplied with the finest wines available to humanity. Now, back to the show. Would you like a drink? Sherry. Sherry. Sherry? Sherry. Sherry. So welcome back to Spoiler, uh, where we're discussing Withnail and I. Now, Richard E. Grant may be teetotal, but his performance as Withnail gave us one of cinema's all-time greatest screen drunks. And Rachel has been taking a look at some other favourite big screen boozers. One bourbon, one scotch, and one bill. Richard E. Grant is without doubt one of the most convincing, oddly endearing drunks ever to grace celluloid. But he isn't alone in bringing alcohol-inspired authenticity to the silver screen. Here are my top five distinguished drunks. At number one, we have Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus in Spielberg's iconic Jaws. I'm starting my list with a slightly less obvious choice, as Hooper isn't a drunk per se. It doesn't typify him, and the famous orca drinking scene is the only time you see him tiddly. But he does tiddly so well, his performance has always stuck in my mind. I got something for you. That's the thresher. You see that, Chief? Thresher's tail. Thresher? That's a shark. Robert Shaw's grisly quint and the slightly overawed Hooper are drinking apricot brandy and get to comparing scars. You want a drink? Drink to your leg? I'll drink to your leg. Okay, so we drink to our legs. <laughs> Missing teeth, bite marks and a famous broken heart lead to a fit of drunken giggles from Hooper that is so at odds with how his character normally is. You can't help but laugh along. I got the creme de la creme. Right here, hold on. Hey, you see that? You're wearing a sweater. Right there. Mary Ellen Moffat. She broke my heart. <laughs> What's that one? The merriment is abruptly cut short by Quint's legendary telling of the story of the USS Indianapolis, which almost sobers up the crew completely until Dreyfus starts to sing Show Me the Way to Go Home. Competitiveness, giggling and singing, a drunk's holy trinity. I had a little drink about an hour ago and just got right to my Number two is Miles Raymond, played by Paul Giamatti in 2004's surprise hit, Sideways. Here is a man who should never allow himself to get drunk, as he loves and reveres wine with an almost religious commitment. However, when push comes to shove and a weekend of wine tasting to celebrate his best friend's impending nuptials goes horribly and devastatingly wrong, he flips. So what's happening? There's still no word, huh? Well, actually, there is word. Um, I spoke to Keith Gersman this morning. Right. And? And they're passing. Miles has previously shown the audience that he knows exactly how to taste wine. Swirling, sniffing, swilling, spitting. But that all goes out the window and Miles falls off the wagon. Excuse me, can I get the uh, pour down here? There's a uh, special on the Syrah by the case. Hit me again. The whole sorry incident culminates in a gross moment of gluttony and despair when Miles glugs the entire contents of the vineyard spit bucket. How's that? 
And then I sit there Getting high Mellow a small but significant character is at number three, Dave Veltry, played by a scene-stealing Steve Buscemi in The Wedding Singer. When my brother, Harold, asked me to be the best man at his wedding, I was like, oh, of course, man, because you've always been there for me. There's always a danger when drinking that your tongue could loosen a bit and that some uncomfortable truth might just spill out. Steve Buscemi's Dave is the epitome of the drunken loose lips phenomena. Because Harold, you know, he's always been the dependable one. And I've always been the screwed up one, right, Dad? Coupled with a possibly lifelong jealousy of his newly married brother, Harold Dave manages birthday. to reveal a shockingly brotherly secret. Remember that time in Puerto Rico when we picked up those two, uh... Well, I guess they were prostitutes, but I don't remember paying. Okay, how about that? <laughs> as well as attempt to prove an unfounded belief in his own mastery at guitar playing. <laughs> He's playing the guitar now, isn't that great? Buscemi's performance encapsulates the embarrassing drunk who you just know is going to wake up in the morning wondering what he said and done the night before. The best man, everybody. Best man, the better man. (laughs) At number four, we look to our one and only black and white film in this list for Elwood P. Dowd, played by James Stewart in the classic Harvey. In complete contrast to the thoughtless, vengeful ramblings of our previous drunk, Elwood P. Dowd is the very model of the happy drunk. Elwood is the sort of unthreatening, gentle kind you'd accept a drink from, then enjoy listening to as they regaled you with nonsense stories. Well, anyway, I was walking down along the street and I, I heard this voice saying, Good evening, Mr. Dowd. Well, I, I turned around and here was this big six-foot rabbit leaning up against a lamppost. The lazy drawl that Jimmy Stewart brought to many of his roles was perfect for a drunken character, but none more so than the kindly Elwood. And now, Aunt Ethel, I'd like you to meet Harvey. Sadly, his fondness for a tipple didn't help him much in presenting himself as a sane and reasonable person who just happened to have a giant rabbit for a companion. I introduced them to Harvey, and he's bigger and grander than anything they offer me. And, and when they leave... They leave impressed. The same people seldom come back, but that's that's envy, my dear. I look down the bar at the bartender. And finally at five, Miss Hannigan, played by the superb Carol Burnett in Annie. Miss Hannigan? Mr. Warbucks, do you know something? For a Republican, you are sinfully handsome. Thank you. You could be forgiven that only men can play decent drunken films, since they seem to get the lion's share of these kind of roles. My God, is that thing real? However, very early on in my film-watching life, I came across an amazing portrayal of a female drunk that I still think takes some beating. It is especially magnificent during one of the more memorable numbers, Little Girls. Little girls, little girls, everywhere I turn. Despite the fact that Carol Burnett had to sing a coherent song while hitting choreographic beats, she still managed to appear completely sozzled. Her slurred words, unbalanced movements and the additional drinking from bottles and vases around her rooms added to the almost headachey feel to the scene. When a bottle and a glass clash together in her hands and she flinches, it's almost tangible. You certainly wouldn't want to spend too long watching her, or you'd end up needing to lie down in a darkened room yourself. Masterful. Someday I'll step on their freckles. 
Some night I'll straighten their curls. So, keep these characters in mind next time you fancy a tipple. Let them be a lesson to you. And if you're going to overindulge, make sure you're an Elwood, not a Hannigan. So, Rachel, thanks for that. Now, uh, Miss Hannigan, now, uh, <laughs> let, me, let me bring this in here because I think we all know the way I feel about musicals. <laughs> Usually great without the music in them. And have you seen Cameron Diaz's version of Miss Hannigan? Have you seen the, the reboot of Annie? No, I you haven't. haven't. I'm not touching that with a barge. <laughs> well, do you know what? I actually, I actually thought, well, you know, it was, it, was, it was okay. I can be turned quite easily by the charm of children's films. And I actually, th- I actually thought Cameron Diaz was pretty good. Really? Mm, I know. I knew, I knew it'd be controversial. I knew I'd be it getting the. I knew I'd be getting the looks I'm getting now. Better than Carol Burnett as Miss Hannigan. You're going to say you haven't seen Carol Burnett's version, not uh, seen. <laughs> don't talk. Don't talk to me about Annie. Seen it. I was in it. Oh, can you guess <laughs> the, the original film? No, uh, the uh, the play at the City School in 1991. So, can you guess which character I played in Annie? Annie. Daddy Warbucks. <laughs> Did they put a bald cap on you? (laughs) (laughs) No, but I was in a wheelchair. Roosevelt. That's me. That's me. Uh, It's. uh, I was excellent. I mean, really, (laughs) really good at acting. At acting at school, got B in drama, obviously. Um, but I couldn't sing, still can't. Um, so, so they gave me. So I was part of the chorus with, the, with Roosevelt. So tomorrow, etc., etc. <laughs> they made me speak by singing. I had some lines to sing, and they made me speak them. I was that bad. It's all right. They did that to Rex Harrison loads. Anyone in Oscar? Exactly. Exactly. Where were you in 1991? You could have told me that. Then. Oh, sorry. <laughs> anyway, we see. We I do drift off. Right. Okay. So with <laughs> with it's like we've lost the plot because there is no plot. Oh yeah. See. Yeah. That one, hook nice that one. one back in. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, coming back to this, you know what I'm like about sometimes when we, we have this. Who suggested this film one, by the way? I, I think it was me. It was, but I think, every, I think everyone agreed, didn't they? Even yeah. I was thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that again. It's been a while. But actually, as I put it in, I thought, oh, I do I? I don't know if I want to spend time with these people. <laughs> and then the intro comes in. What's the song at the, uh, at the beginning? It's the jazz version. It's the version of White Shade of Pale. Of course yeah. it is. And I thought, wow, no, actually, listen to that. This is going to be perfect. This is great. And then, I don't know, I thought, well... I think it's the character of Danny that um, I know he's, he's a hugely loved character, but I just found out there was, the, again, living back in that house share that I had in the <laughs> 90s, right? There were characters like that that I'm pleased just not in my life anymore. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I don't want to spend time around these people anymore. But actually, no, you know, I, I, I kept up and down, up and down. And then let me just mention one name to you. Richard Griffiths. <laughs> well, didn't he save the day for you when there you were we when you were saying, "Do we want to spend time with these people?" Yes. Richard Griffiths turns out. I mean, and I mean, he's. I mean, I've I've made a note here that that all the characters of this are despicable. They're selfish people, drug dealers, drink drivers. One of them, who who just called the saviour of the film, is in the plot is an attempted rapist. Yeah. And yet they touch upon something so human about these characters are so utterly trapped mm. in their situations and so desperate and somehow it, it, it taps into a sympathy that you wouldn't otherwise have for them. Mm. I mean, uh, talking of Richard Griffiths, if anyone else had played this role or if anyone but Bruce Robinson had written the screenplay, this could have been a very offensive mm. part. I mean, it's a, it could have fallen into the, the kind of stereotype of the predatory homosexual, which has turned up in all sorts of awful films. But it's not it's not offensive at all, because Uncle Monty's such a, he's such a fully rounded character, rather than a representative stereotype. And the way that he behaves in this is, is so consistent with his desperation mm. and his unhappiness 
that like the minute after you've seen him almost sexually assault someone in one scene we then see the note that he leaves after he after he's eavesdropped on them and mm. he's left and there's so much hurt and everything and it, it's it's such a sad note mm. that it somehow you just you forgive him i don't know i don't know if i can quite square that with myself <laughs> as a person and yet when I watch this film, I feel the same every time. When when we when I watched this film with uh, with my wife, she turned to me at the end and said, "I've forgotten what a sad film that was." Mm, it's incredibly sad. And I think that's that's a, a key thing in this. It's mm. even as, and the, you, you laugh all the way through it, but the characters are so kind of tragic. There's such an underlying tragedy all the way through. I mean, I think it's. I didn't get when I first saw it that it was a black comedy because I, I used to think that black comedy meant like a corpse is falling out of cupboards and things like that. <laughs> very, but I think, I, watching it now, I think it's the blackest of black comedies. Mm. It's such a sad, sort of despairing film. And yet, it, I mean, it, you've got all these, these brilliant lines all the way through it and performances which are lifting it out of that. But I, I feel a, a sense of melancholy all the way through mm. it as well. It's not like a comedy that you put on like Caddyshack or something oh, no. where you just sort of, it's going to lift you for that, that hour and a half. You're going to watch this and you're going to feel, you feel a sense of melancholy. You feel trapped with these characters, mm. don't you? It is. I mean, who, we, you know, the, the, the waffle we were talking about with plot earlier. And let's make a statement here today. Let's have less films with plot in, please. Life, <laughs> life doesn't have a plot, no, does it? A... Yeah. And you're right. When, when, you, when you lose some of that plotting and saying, this needs to happen here, this needs to happen here, you end up with true emotion portrayed by a wonderful actor in, in, in Richard Griffiths uh, and, and a superbly written script around that as well, isn't it? Uh, now, Andy has been taking a look at the movie world's sometimes uneasy relationship with homosexuality. During my teens and 20s, I suddenly found myself mistakenly perceived as gay on a fairly regular basis. Though I never pinpointed exactly why this was, I was never offended by the assumption, just a little surprised, at least on the first few occasions. However, while some people asked me the question out of curiosity, more often than not, it was easy to detect either a hostile sense of revulsion or a juvenile mocking glee, both of which equated to an obvious homophobic attitude. The question are you gay, was invariably punctuated with the word mate in order to hastily affirm my tactless interviewer's own heterosexuality and surprise followed when I responded with the simple no. After all, films and television have more often than not taught us that the worst thing you can do to a man is question his heterosexuality and that the correct response is desperation to correct this at all costs before it severely damages your reputation. During the height of 90s laddism, the Divine Comedy released a single called Generation Sex, which begins with Neil Hannon singing the line Generation Sex respects the rights of girls who wanna take their clothes off as long as we can all watch that's okay. Although it has undoubtedly come a long way in attitudes towards homosexuality, I'd say that cinema's current treatment of gays and lesbians roughly equates to Hannon's hypothesis. We respect the rights of homosexuals as long as we retain the right to have a good laugh at them at the same time. Often I'm watching and enjoying a film, only to suddenly have the enjoyment undermined by a throwaway piece of homophobia which either seems to go unnoticed by everyone else or, more distressingly, gets the biggest laugh of the whole movie. In Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, for instance, while fighting against the humongous wrestler Bonesaw, Spider-Man taunts him with the words, That's a cute outfit. Did your husband give it to you? 
In the romantic comedy Just Friends, Ryan Reynolds' character, forced to sit through a showing of the film The Notebook, whispers disgustedly, This is so gay. Immediately after which, we see two men in the row in front of him kissing. They stop, turn, and smile at him, and he reacts with barely suppressed disgust. Perhaps most troublingly, given that it is aimed at children, Toy Story 3 features a moment in its closing credits in which the toys receive a letter from Barbie and Ken. Hope to hear from you soon. We're all super excited about your Assuming it was written by Barbie because of its sparkly purple writing and doodles of hearts and stars in the margin, when they realised it is actually written by Ken. Uh, Buzz? Barbie didn't write this. They look at each other and pull awkwardly disapproving faces that can probably be best described using the term... For all its casual homophobia, though, cinema is at least now a medium in which gay and lesbian characters are more visible, and the subject of homosexuality can be tackled in depth and with an authenticity and sensitivity that was once impossible to get past the censors. In Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman's brilliant documentary The Celluloid Closet, based on the book of the same name by film historian and gay rights activist Vito Russo, one of cinema's earliest pieces of film, the 17-second Dixon Experimental Sound film, is identified as an important early example of the depiction of male intimacy. In the film, cinema pioneer William Dixon plays a violin while two men dance together to the music. Although some critics have noted that in the 19th century, all-male stag dances were not an uncommon thing, the way the two men hold each other is so tender and so movingly unafraid of potential judgement that it would never have evaded the censor's scissors once the Hayes Production Code was adopted in the 1930s. This list of rules aiming to improve Hollywood's image as films began to get more risque ultimately promoted a narrowly conservative and intolerant agenda which forbade, among other things, the depiction of interracial relationships, ridicule of the clergy, images of white slavery, and any inference of what they termed sexual perversion. This latter stipulation proved to be the hardest to get around, and over subsequent years, as previously forbidden depictions of drugs, abortion, nudity and open-mouthed kissing made their ways onto the big screen, Hollywood still showed disproportionate reticence when it came to homosexuality. Do you eat oysters? When I have them, Master. Do you eat snails? No, Master. Do you consider the eating of oysters to be moral and the eating of snails to be immoral? No, Master. Suggestive scenes in Spartacus, utilising strangled metaphors about enjoying both snails and oysters, were cut out. It is all a matter of taste, isn't it? Yes, Master. Tennessee Williams' adaptations were hacked to pieces to remove any implication of same-sex attraction. Director William Wyler only managed to sneak a subtle gay subtext into Ben-Hur by hiding the true nature of Ben-Hur and Masala's relationship from an oblivious Charlton Heston. <laughs> After all these years, still close. In every way. British cinema was slightly ahead of the curve, and as social realism became popular, Basil Dearden was able to make the brilliant film Victim over half a decade before homosexuality was decriminalised in England and Wales. Victim focuses on Melville Farr, a successful barrister whose career and marriage are threatened when a young man with whom he shared a brief romantic relationship warns him that blackmailers have an incriminating photograph of the two of them together. 
Written by husband and wife team Janet Green and John McCormick, Victim was an affirmation of their support for homosexual law reform and stars Dirk Bogard, who brought his own experiences as a closeted gay man to his intense performance. I want to know the truth. I want to know why he hanged himself. He was being blackmailed. That's why he stole? Yes. Someone found out he was a homosexual and blackmailed him. That's it. For all its taboo-breaking importance, Victim has been retrospectively viewed as fairly traditional in some regards. Melville is depicted as never having had sex with any of the men he desired, and the film ends with him reconciling with his wife. As critic Pauline Kael noted, the hero of the film is a man who has never given way to his homosexual impulses. He has fought them. That's part of his heroism. All right, you want to know. I shall tell you. You won't be content until you know, will you? Till you ripped it out of me! I stopped seeing him because I wanted him. Do you understand? Because I wanted him! While Victim helped pave the way for more films about homosexuality, this era of films generally depicted gays and lesbians as tortured figures who struggle with their sexuality usually ended in tragedy. Screenwriter Arthur Lorenz observed, You must pay. You must suffer. If you're a, a woman who commits adultery, you're only put out in the storm. If you're a woman who has another woman, you better go hang yourself. It's a question of degree, and certainly if you're gay, you have to do real penance, die. For gay characters unwilling to fit into such melodramatic formulas, audience scorn often awaited. Arthur Hiller's 1982 film, Making Love, attempted to tackle homosexuality in an adult, non-melodramatic way. Although it showed nothing more racy than two men kissing without their shirts on, the studio felt the subject was controversial enough to slap a warning on the beginning of the film. The message read, Making love deals openly and candidly with delicate issue. It is not sexually explicit, but it may be too strong for some people. Making love is bold but gentle. We are proud of its honesty. To him, she was the most beautiful woman in the world. Witty, loving, warm. To her, he was a friend she could always turn to. A lover, a husband, a man as compassionate as he was strong. But there was a need in him he could no longer keep unexplored. Since it is hard to imagine anyone going to see a film called Making Love without expectations of some sexual content, the implication of the message is clear, and the studio's professed pride in the film's content did not extend to the courage to not offer the narrow-minded an escape route before even one frame of the movie had appeared on screen. Making Love, a love story for the 80s. To my mind, this is entirely the wrong approach, and panders to the prejudices the filmmakers are doing their best to destroy. Of his 1993 film Philadelphia, director Jonathan Demme said, We didn't want to make a film that would appeal to an audience of people like us, who already had a predisposition for caring about people with AIDS. We wanted to reach the people who couldn't care less about people with AIDS. That was our target audience. Discreetly suggesting to homophobes that the films of Todd Haynes or Greg Araki might not be for them is to render impotence a powerful tool against prejudice. The rise of the new queer cinema, the growing number of openly gay celebrities and public figures who actively support LGBT rights has been a joy to see but until the rampant homophobia that still dogs our life is completely stamped out, we should not congratulate ourselves too much. Whether homophobia is born of religious objections, a misguided perception of old-fashioned family values, 
or just honest-to-goodness thick-headed bigotry. It's just not good enough anymore. Sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. Everyone is entitled to an opinion, but if your opinion happens to impinge on the rights of others, then you must expect to eventually be shouted down. You can't claim intolerance in defence of your right to be intolerant. Charlie Chaplin, often mistakenly believed to be Jewish, was once pointedly asked if he was. His response, it's taken me over a decade to realise, is also the perfect answer to the sneering question, are you gay, mate? And if I am ever faced with that question again, I shall respond with this simple, elegant words. I'm afraid I don't have that honour. Well, thanks for that, Andy. Thank you very much. Now, and I think sometime during the 90s, and this is bringing back the 90s. Like, I, don't, I don't know. Some of it I'm really enjoying. Some of it I'm thinking, oh. But this part I'm enjoying <laughs> because um, yeah, throughout the 90s, I was chatted up quite a lot by men. I always found it such, you know, it's like a, a oh, well, thank you very much. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, you know, not for me. Hey, well done. But, you know, this, th- <laughs> thanks for the attention. I mean, and I'll be honest, any attention was welcome. <laughs> you see, I, I would have liked to have been chatted up. I was, I was never chatted up. I was just asked if I was gay, but... There was never a, there was never any interest. Oh, I think I've always I've definitely always had a camp air around me, um, <laughs> uh, which I, I certainly don't dissuade. Um, so back where we what, what film we're we talking about? Have we all drunk a bit too many fine wines? Uh, yeah, yeah, fine wines and a little bit too much lighter fluid. Lighter fluid. But did we don't have to put a thing in here saying don't drink lighter fluid? Do I don't that's think just so. Just common sense, isn't it? I never <laughs> like those things anyway that say don't do this, don't do that. No. I mean, it's just, you know. There's plenty in Withnall, I say don't do that anyway. Do, most houses don't have lighter fluid in, I would say, these days anyway. No. But this is the 60s, so. Yeah. No filling up, maybe they're lighters? Oh, yeah. yeah but they used to have like fancy, nice, fancy lighters then, didn't they? Like, you know, like a Zippo lighter, that yeah. kind of thing, wouldn't they? Yeah, proper fuel. Oh, man, that was a boring piece of radio. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that in, though. Keep that in. <laughs> I think we've, I tell you, we, we've, we've peaked here. We've peaked, and we've. But this, actually, I mean, let's face it, right? If you were, if you'd been on the end of a Camberwell <laughs> carrot, right? Don't, all right, yeah, don't smoke at home, kids. Whatever, right? It, you, that, this is the kind of boring three in the morning conversation you'd be stuck with, isn't it? Oh man! Don't you do light fluid? Yeah, is it polite? Right, let's, let's move on to the ending, shall we? I want to talk lost. about the little bit of Latin that they talk, that I've okay. only just figured out what they say. Did you find out about this? No, no. So there's a bit, there's a section where they're playing cards mm-hmm. in the cottage and uh, Richard E. Grant's character and Monty mm-hmm. are having a bit of a an exchange and looking at I, or Marwood, as we know he's called. I'm going to come back, I'm going to pick up, I'm um, going to come back to you on that. Okay. And um, And they start speaking Latin, which is a very public schoolboy thing to do yeah. that they're, they're talking in, in Latin because they know he won't understand and um, I've only just recently found out what they say to each other Monty says looking a bit lonely isn't he and um, Withnell says he needs a queen to come to the rescue so when he pulls a queen mm. that's why they laugh so heartily so this is why I can forgive Monty more because actually Withnell's making this happen all the way along the line yeah. he doesn't really think that it's anything like aggressive to go and get him really he thinks he's just playing hard to get he thinks he quite likes him. So I can forgive Monty. And he immediately pulls back as soon as he says, oh, we're in love, we've been having an affair. Oh, my dear boy. And he pulls straight back. Yeah, it's so, interesting. you know, I has, can forgive him. He has a, he has a, a sort of moral code, don't, doesn't yeah. he? When he, he says, I would never have attempted to come between you when he yeah. thinks that, that they might be a couple. And yet, 
in that famous line about burglary, he yeah. acknowledges that yeah. Yeah. it's not going to be consensual, doesn't he? So That's there's, true. it's very uh, like like everything in this film. I think it's very uh, morally blurred. Yeah, it's very grim. I, I I don't think any of us can deny Richard E. Grant's performance as 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 with now. I don't think anyone anyone. Could, but I know one thing we do like to do is look at other actors that were considered for roles in this film. Yeah. Uh, have, we, have anyone got any names? Anyone seen anything, anything yep. on this? What have you got? Um, Daniel what have you got? Day Lewis, <laughs> Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. Yeah. And do you know what? I could, I could, I see, could imagine I could it. See yeah. that. I could. I think you'd overhammer it. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I genuinely, at that period in, in the 80s, mm. He was yeah. still a little yeah. bit hammy. Yeah. Yeah, you see, Dennis O'Brien, the uh, the sort of overseer for handmade films who came out, he wanted Richard E. Grant to play it like Kenneth Williams. <laughs> yes, which that's would right. Have, would have been a disaster, oh, wouldn't it? Terrible. Yeah. And then uh, there was um, Bill Nye as yeah. well. Bill Nye. Can yeah. see that? Yeah, and uh, Ed Tudor Pole. Oh, blimey. If you see Ed Tudor Pole <laughs> act, oh, has anyone seen Absolute Beginners? No. Oh, blimey. No. <laughs> so. Just now, Rachel, you were, you were saying the, the name Marwood, and I've seen on that there internet people refer to him as Art Marwood. I just prefer Paul McGann's character here, just to, there, there to be no name and him to be I. Where does Marwood come from? What's all that business? I've heard that, that when, uh, you know, when the telegram is delivered uh, mm-hmm. to say that he's got the call back for his acting role, yeah. apparently you can see Marwood on the telegram oh. that arrives, and this is where people have picked up on it from. And uh, I, I think in, in some versions of the, the screenplay, He's down as Marwood as well, so people have read. I mean, this this started off as a novel, didn't it, that was passed mm-hmm. around people and then the screenplay. So I think people have picked up the name from, not from watching the film, but from the various sort of hard okay. copies that went around. So you wouldn't want to know Withnell's first name either? Then. Absolutely not, no. OK, I won't tell you. <laughs> no, that, that'd, be like, that'd be like that time I found out what um, Losing My Religion was really about. <laughs> Don't tell me. I oh, yeah, know, it's awful. It's nice and all, but it's, it's, it's still, you know, it's not what's in your head. It's not what's in my head. <laughs> no. uh, can I just pick up at this point as well and say that I think Paul McGann is really, really good in this yes, film. And he's always, he's always overlooked, mm. uh, obviously because he's against these... These powerhouse performances are Richard E. Grant and Richard Griffiths. And uh, Ralph Brown, obviously, as Danny the Dealer, is giving it this kind of uh, over-the-top performance, which they picked out. But Paul McGann holds it together so much. And mm. uh, I think that the role he's playing, he's kind of the fixer. He kind of they, they get into the cottage and he says, right, you do the firewood, I'll do this. I'll... And mm. I think he's he kind of feels like that in terms of acting as well. He, yeah. He holds all the big performances together mm. with this thing that we can we can sort of grab onto as viewers. I think he is kind of our way into to this world, and yeah. that's why when he when he escapes it at the end, it's it's so much of a a kind of release for us as well. Yeah, because we definitely go with him. Yeah, I feel oh, we absolutely. leave with Nell behind as well. Yeah, because yeah, you're right. We can't we can't relate to any of them really, but if we relate to any of them, it's him. Yeah. So no, it is a beautiful performance and. Just a little bit trivia for you. He was fired and rehired a couple of times because um, Bruce Robinson didn't like his Liverpoolian accent. <laughs> so he had to put on his home county's accent, which is beautiful. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah, and it is definitely the right accent as well. I don't know. It's very stable. It's a very stabilising mm. accent. He never gets incredibly passionate, only these little bursts of passion. And um, and I think that's... You couldn't have somebody being all passionate and, no. and you know, it just wouldn't work. You need, the, you need Withnell and you need... He doesn't get a lot of the big lines either, no. does he really? But uh, but I do love hearing him say, my thumbs have gone yes, weird. that's exactly the line <laughs> I was thinking of. <laughs> Why did you poison their onions? <laughs> so, uh, so with your DVD 
said. Have you got the audio commentary? Is that what have you got that? Um, I, I don't think there's. I don't think there's an audio commentary. Oh no, no, I think there is. Well, there's one. I know there's one available on YouTube, and I, I, I sort of flick flick through it a bit. And there's Paul McGann and, and Ralph Brown who plays Danny. And Ralph Brown, when you look through his IMDb, Mike, he's been I in know. everything. Because <laughs> you do look at, oh yeah, he's been in that. You know, he's that guy Great that was career. in what's it? Yeah, uh, and he's yeah, he's <laughs> fantastic. But he's got a perfect. I mean, especially as he's matured, he's got his perfect face for you know. Um, <laughs> A, a villain, I suppose, or you know, someone, uh, someone who needs to look a bit mean. <laughs> I think he essentially reprises the role of Danny in Wayne's World too, as well. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> oh, excellent. Oh, yeah. I should have gone. Excellent. <laughs> right now, I, I do feel now that it's perhaps time to move on towards the ending. And when they got back to the fact, and I'd said before about the character today, I started to get. A, Touch irritated again, but there was this. There's this look, just one look from Richard E. Grant, and it was the look when I uh, gets to tell people that uh, not only has he got a part, he's got the lead role, and this look when uh, with now says congratulations, and you you can see he kind of means it, but he doesn't really mean it, and he's very jealous, and he's very he's very so you know he's kind of sobered him up because it's. Oh, I'm, I'm an actor, darling. All that kind of thing. It's all in there in that one look. Mm, I think there's even more than that. I think there's he, that means he's going to leave me because he really needs I. He really needs him in his life. And I think there is love there. And I know there's lots of debate about whether he's in love with I or not. But um, there's definite, oh, you're going to go off and you're going to have this amazing life and you're going to leave me behind. Mm. He looks like a lost child. Yeah. He looks yeah. abandoned already. It's it's quite it's quite uh, remarkable actually when you you watch this film. I don't I don't think about it when I watch it, but I was thinking about it when I was preparing for this and thinking there's there's very few films that where there's such a almost total absence of women mm. in it, uh, not just as a, an actual presence, but they don't talk about women. They're not. I mean, it's strange because this film has such a kind of it's so kind of interlinked with sort of lad culture. I mean, there was a lot of. Uh, I think Loaded magazine in their first ever issue did a big sort of uh, did a famous article about it, and and yet there's there's they're not sort of laddish, are they? I mean, no. they I think that there's this kind of uh, excess which may be the the lad sort of the lad mag mentality sort of worships, but they don't talk about women, they don't objectify women. There's no and so this. Uh, Everyone's sexuality, with like obviously Monty aside, is mm. is quite kind of blurred. We never mm. touch on any of it, do we? And no. so, the, it is at, at the end. At the end of this, it it does feel like that's the central couple of the film parting, doesn't mm, it? it definitely and does. and whether whether you whether you put any kind of sexual connotations or anything on that or not, it's it very much feels like the the classic kind of end scene. I mean, it is, it's Casablanca. It's the mm. parting, yeah. the sad parting at the end, isn't it? Mm. But the speech in the pouring rain, mm. you know, it just goes to show that if, you know, if he didn't have that sherry before breakfast, then, you know, he, he darn it, he can act. He's got some good talent. Yeah. He's got some really powerful talent. It's a really moving, moving part of the film, an amazing soliloquy. And I've heard that speech from a lot of different actors. Yeah. I've watched Hamlet a lot. Oh, is that Hamlet, is it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and, um, and, uh, <laughs> there we go. That's brought me back there. <laughs> <laughs> um, which ties in with what Monty was saying. I will, I will never, never play, play the Dane. Dane. And he said, it's a part I intend to play, Uncle. Mm. And, and he could do it. He could so do it. But the problem is he won't lower himself 
to do the understudies. He won't lower himself to do the small parts. He just wants to be a star. And um, whereas, you know, I, when he first went for the journey's end part, it was a tiny, weeny little part. And even, you know, Withnall said, oh, you know, it's barely anything. But then he carried on with it and he ends up getting the lead. So you just think with, with Withnall, just just start at the bottom and work your way up but he'll never do that and it's so tragic because there's a real talent there I'm so glad they went with this ending as well because oh, you yeah. heard about the original ending that he'd planned yeah. was that with Nail went back to the flat poured the uh, the wine that he stole from Monty into the barrels of the shotgun necked it back with the shotgun and pulled the trigger mm. and that it doesn't fit at it doesn't all does fit, it no. with the, the film and it's uh, whereas this I mean everything you need to you need to know is in that that amazing performance and you, you think he really could have made something of himself and then as you walk as he walks away you think well they, we know that he's he's got this this drink driving conviction now they're being evicted mm. you think give it a few days and he probably will be dead mm. but he definitely wouldn't kill himself because that's far too decisive no, for him no he wouldn't he wouldn't he couldn't make that decision he's too vague he would never get to that sort of decisiveness of I'm going to kill myself. No, well, that's just a lazy flourish, isn't it? Yeah. Which was, I don't know how to end my script. And yeah. luckily, yeah, he they, thought again. Yeah. And it, it turned out he did know how to end his script. Yes, he And did. he did it perfectly. It really was perfect. Well, it's OK, because as we're running out of uh, films and uh, anything with a plot, uh, we'll find out in With Nail 2, The Revenge. <laughs> Uh, coming up soon by a cynical, uh, ever money-crazed Hollywood. Um, and what a lovely, delightful way to end. Um, <laughs> so let's give our... I, I like the verdicts on this one. We're going to go with a rating this time of, um, with Nail and I, is it a 1953 Margot? Or is it lighter fluid? And I think I know the answer. <laughs> I, 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 no, I, let's, not, let's not insult... I, I was about let's, to say. Let's not insult ourselves with that. I just, you know, I'd written it. I had to say it. <laughs> let's just, you know, wash over it. Just um, raise a glass and, yeah. and end it in a dignified manner. And what better way, what better dignified way to end than a poem from Andy Goulding? Thanks, everyone. It seems absolutely absurd to deem a particular word as inherently dirty, yet still folk get shirty if ever a swear word is heard. Some people go on the defensive with unqualified cries of offensive and a hectoring voice as their weapon of choice, as if reasons were just too expensive. I contend, if your usage is sparing, that the delicate art of good swearing enriches our days in a number of ways as a right over which it's worth caring. And numerous sources have proven what fools we would be to remove them. If our various languages are like tasty sandwiches, swears are the source that improves them. Let's renounce the persistent inanity of decrying our precious profanity, for the priggish constabulary dull our vocabulary and stifle our f***ing humanity. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher with additional music from the With Nail and I original soundtrack. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. 
click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show, or writing us a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we're taking a look at season one of the sci-fi TV series, Humans. I'm watching you. I'm watching you too, Laura. You're right in front of me. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hall and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful Cathedral City of Lincoln. This place is uninhabitable. <laughs> <laughs>